Welcome to the Meditation Ward. My name is Nadia Ward. I'm really excited to bring you this podcast where I talk to interesting people who also happen to be meditators. We talk about their stories, the way they got into meditation, and any tips or tools they'd like to share with you. Each week, there's a second episode, a guided meditation that we hope you'll enjoy. If you would like to start your own meditation practice, we would love you to check out our course, Exploring Meditation, a seven-week course designed by me, Nadia. Each week, you learn new tips and tools and how to create your own personal meditation practice that works for you. Follow us at The Meditation Ward on Instagram or go to the website, themeditationward.com. Sign up for our emails and check out our courses. And now, on to the episode. Welcome back, everyone, to The Meditation Ward. My name is Nadia, and I am extremely excited to get to talk to Jack Rourke today. He is one of the most prominent spiritual counselors in North America and considered the top love and relationship psychic in America. Fox hired Mr. Rourke to profile the Casey Anthony and John JonBenet Ramsey murder case. CW Network hired him to investigate the mysterious death of Eliza Lamb. Uh, Jack's day-to-day client work is solely focused on helping clients address and resolve their most important personal, interpersonal, and spiritual concerns using the intuitive methodology he's developed over three decades, serving people, officials, and individuals in sometimes life-threatening circumstances. Jack is also an author, and he wrote The Rational Psychic, A Skeptic's Guide to Extraordinary Perception. Thank you so much, Jack, for taking the time to talk to me. Very welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. You're welcome. So I'm sure like some of the questions that I'm curious about, you might have already answered like a thousand times to other people. So we'll try to find a way to make it new and fresh for you. But of course, one of the first things is like, were you born with this? Did you learn it or was it a combination? How did the psychic abilities come into your life and how and when. Yeah, thank you for that. So I, I chronicled that in in the book, The Rational Psychic. Um, and I, so it's very, it's a very common thing for people to, you know, claim to be born psychic, there's even books on that, right. Um, and that can that maybe that's true. Right? However, I like to get a little more granular with those types of things. The reality is, is that all consciousness, all human beings are um, extrasensory in that there is a transpersonal relationship between every individual and a relationship between the individual consciousness and the environment. So this kind of spiritual oneness fundamentally is true. And there's, of course, individuality emerges from that. So we all know that when children are born, when you first hold a baby in your arms, those big black eyes look up at you and our heart just fills with love. And really in relationship to the infinite space beyond the eyes of that child is we feel ourselves as infinite as well. That's what we're doing. The experience of self changes in relationship to the focus of our attention. And when we go into relationship with a baby or a dog, we feel this vastness we actually can physically feel 
our heart open up. We feel the energy begin to rush and change inside our body. And we feel joy and just this unbelievable capacity to love and be loved. And so, you know, I love that to love and be loved. Absolutely. And so in that moment as well, the child, as we download an experience of the infinite of love, the child is downloading day by day, moment by moment from us, our, their caretaker, an internal frame of reference because they have no separate self, right? There's no individual eye looking up from behind the eyes of that newborn. And it's very common to people who suffer trauma, uh, who later in life become interested in metaphysics to lament when I was a child, I was so, you know, intuitive or what have you. And they use this as a way to beat themselves up or to describe what it feels like to be isolated or alone. And you mean like they said that they were intuitive as a child, so they beat themselves up because they lost that in their life? Because they lost that. Yes. Or they use it as a way to as an example of the kind of abuse or the, the, the way happenstance impacted them. And what they don't really understand is that's entirely normal. That what happens is every mom will tell you and every dad has observed that as parents, our children, their subjective experience of self up until around two, two and a half years old, three, is the caretaker's experience of self. So if uh, we're holding the child or we're holding their hand, we're in their company. If we get afraid of something, they become afraid. If we, it even happens to your um, pets. That's exactly right. Because with higher mammals, higher mammals in this case, I mean, dogs, not really cats because there's psychopathic <laughs> in cats, arguably, uh, but dogs, elephants, uh, dolphins, these types of things, these types of creatures, these these are partners in the animal kingdom. They're neurologically wired similarly to us. In fact, they can read our facial expressions. They understand our voice. They can feel us inside of them, much like we feel inside of us, their emotional state when we're open to it and those of the people that we love, right? That's empathy. Yeah. And so Is it like a, sorry to interrupt. Is it kind of like a vibration? Um, an energy vibration or just like a sense of the knowing of the love or the fear that you just sense? It, it may be a little bit of both. So okay. I, I, I tend to use the word energies very, very sparingly because when, when psychic aspirants or metaphysically minded people use the term energy, it becomes a catch-all. And when we use catch-alls, it becomes a way, it means whatever we mean, we want it to mean. And ultimately energy becomes a way of sort of it's the glue that fabricates the false self so when we develop the spiritual identity we, we use energy to kind of glue together all the bits and pieces that makes us significant as a spiritual being so i, I like to use those types of words very very uh, selectively and and very very precisely so when we talk about energy we're we can we can actually break it down to yes you're correct there is a there is an energetic exchange because we have mirror neurons our dog has mirror neurons and we they can sense and feel the emanations of our nervous system much the way we can feel and sense the emanations of their nervous system and we all have again not to get too metaphysical but we all have an aura and that aura consists of 
the vibrations of our beating heart, the vibrations of our, our nervous system and the output of our brain, uh, our musculature, right? And so we, we have these way and think of our, our voice. These are concussion waves that are directed by our breath through our vocal cords and depending on the unique characteristics of our vocal cords, changes the quality of the sound so it's individual. I'm not talking about the words. Words are mental concepts. Words are vibrations of sound that we have selected certain meanings for. But the feeling of the voice encoded in the vibrations of the heart, in the vibrations of the concussion waves that leave our vocal cords, etc., is energy. Yes, but it's energy as patterns of information that we give meaning to. So empathy is a felt sense of another's emotional condition or well-being experienced as if we are that person or inside of us, right? Yeah. Going back to this idea of this exchange of information, babies don't have a an interior frame of reference in terms of a, a structure that is the personality. So we were mentioning a few minutes ago about how uh, you know, a child learns to be frightened or to love something or to experience something uniquely in relationship to their primary caregiver or that which they're relating to at the moment, right? And then, you know, two, two and a half years old, what happens? All of a sudden, me, mine, no, right? The child is beginning to create a boundary. What are they creating a boundary around? Their burgeoning sense of self, their unique individuality. And that's why at three or four years old, you look at them and you look at the way they walk. You look at the way they talk, the way they gesture. And you're like, oh my God, that's a little person. Yeah. Like, a little my, niece, my little niece is like three and a half right now. And it's a trip. Yeah. And with little girls, it's like, how do they know to do this? You know, how do they, you know, how do they, how do children know about these postures that are uniquely kind of, you know, masculine or feminine or what, not to, not to go straight into gender issues, but it's the quality of the characteristics of the individual begin to become apparent. Now, children remain creative and spontaneous and kind of curious and fun and silly. They're not monitoring their self because the self isn't fully formed yet, right? However, there is a process of individuation occurring. So, if you if we think about our brain as these as these two halves that are kind of wired together, there's something called the corpus callosum, and it's a system of neurons. And baby babies are born with millions upon millions of neurons that they don't actually need. And so, from the time of their birth until about nine years old, so a baby is continuing to grow about forty thousand neurons, I believe. It's it might be per second, but it's at least per minute. So they're constantly kind of growing that identity in relationship to their brain's capacity to hold an identity. Then once there kind of is a baseline personality there, they individuate and let's call it three to nine years old, the brain still begins to pare down. So what I mean by that is this corpus callosum has stitched the left and right hemisphere together. And as the years progress, these neurons that are unnecessary begin to die off. And then what you have are two separate hemispheres at around nine years old. And the left brain, left brain, right brain, are no longer really um, directly communicating with one another in, a, in, in the way it once was. 
Now what you have is a linear, logical, language-bearing thinker, and then you have the creative, inspired, non-linear right brain. And so the thing is, is while these two are wired together, you ask a child, uh, who took the last cookie? Uh, after you told them there's no cookies before dinner, and the child shuffles their, shuffles their feet and says, the monster did. And you go, uh, who did? The monster did. And you go, oh, a monster did. And yeah. And they'll tell you what the monster looked like and what happened. And they really believe the monster came in and took the last cookie. So it's not really like they're lying, people. They're not lying. They believe it. Because yeah. the, the linear logical left brain is wired to the ima imagination center. So the experience is real. The monster took it. Right? But once the brain tears down, you have two separate hemispheres. And around nine years old, eight, nine years old, you start getting, oh, yeah, I did that, right? And so, but more importantly, it's once the hemispheres separate, direct knowing sort of goes away. Because, and, and with adults, when we're sitting in development, to, you know, to access extrasensory perception, really what we're trying to do is reintroduce a neural connection between the left and right hemispheres. Right. So fundamentally, all human beings are extrasensory because we have an empathic experience of intuitive knowing. Uh, empathic is the relationship between individuals. It's, you know, it's the way to feel you and understand your condition. Empathy is something that's developed because we've evolved in communities. If we didn't have the capacity to experience empathy, we wouldn't be able to modulate our behavior in relationship to other people. And in primitive times, if you can't modulate to the community, bye, yeah. you know, and then good luck fighting saber-toothed tigers all on your own, right? So with that, empathy is something that's evolved to help us communicate, create, and collaborate and cooperate for survival. Um, and- Is empathy um, part of the creative side of the brain instead of the logical side? So neurologically speaking, I really can't speak to that. Okay. But what, I, what I can say sort of based on practical experience is, is empathy is an interpersonal uh, experience of the self of others as if it's, as if it's our own. And it, relationally speaking, it allows us to connect, create um, experience, intimacy, to find meaning and fulfillment in life, right? Um, and I sort of take umbrage with this idea of empathy as a, a psychic ability. So, but let's just push pause on that because it's a relational skill and it can be developed and it actually enriches and increases our ability to serve others. It's not a necessarily something that is a paranormal ability. Um, but direct knowing, intuition. Intuition is one of the theses in my book is that extrasensory perception is an adaptation of the fight or flight response. So what that means is they direct knowing the awareness of information directly without having to deduce it is the function of intuition. Intuition is the hairs on the back of the neck go up, right? Intuition is, you know what? I'm going to turn left. I'm crossing the street right now. I don't know why, but I'm going over here. And then something horrible happens that you miss. So this too is a kind of survival response. And 
All of these things indicate that we are extrasensory beings. But to, to function as a psychic... Um, is, can you kind of say what extrasensory is? Extrasensory. That's just... Yeah. Is that confusing? Why? Um, well, is it just intuition? Okay, so what I'm trying to make a distinction here is what intuition is. Intuition right. is a direct knowing. Oftentimes, it's a it's an evolutionary thing where it's a way of communicating to the conscious mind without having to think or deduce. So we we all have a past, and as a species, we have a past, and many things have occurred over time. And let's say, for example, we're walking on a path, and you know, we see a tiger, you know, this is primitive times. And we don't have to go, wow, that's a big cat. You know, my cat's only three pounds and this one's really big, but it's also orange. I wonder if I can pet it. My my cat likes me and I pick her up. Maybe I should pick up this cat. It's 600 pounds. I don't know, chomp. <laughs> you know, a direct knowing is an evolutionary response where you see that tiger and you know instantly, oh, run, right? So that's that's intuition at its kind of in a nutshell. It's a it's a communication from sort of a transpersonal communication to the conscious awareness without having to think or deduce that oh, I need to take action. This is what needs to do. Creative inspiration is something is is kind of similar. Um, so, but what I'm saying is things like intuition, things like empathy. They all have qualities of extrasensory perception because the source of the inspiration, the source of the information comes from a, a nonlinear source that doesn't require us to kind of figure things out. It's just like, oh, I feel that, I know it. Yeah, let's do that, right? So extrasensory perception, the way I want to talk about that is the ability to discern information independent of the five physical senses. So another way to look at it is it's evidence of a transfer of energy or a transfer of information, a relationship of, between consciousness, the awareing, the, the observing awareness and the environment. So the environment could be other people, the environment could be, you know, the surroundings. So there's, there's a conscious being observing the thoughts in here, observing the incoming sensory perceptions. And what happens is people tend to identify with their perceptions and they create an identity around that. And they say, well, this is me, this is who I am. And then it becomes so forward leaning, so attached to sensory experiences, they lose touch with the observer. And then they become deaf to intuition, numb to empathy. And we all know people like this, that they just think whatever I hold in my hand is real and nothing else. Does that help? Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I think you were taking that somewhere before I asked for more clarity. <laughs> I, I think what I was just saying was, is that with people who, who think that they've lost their inborn psychic ability is that say you don't really have an inborn psychic ability. 
is that we're naturally extrasensory because our nervous system is an antenna that receives information and sends out information as energy, right? Energy is patterns of information that we give meaning to. And even if we're not aware of it, it's always happening. It's, it's always occurring. And so to develop psychic ability is the ability to willfully access that information without personalizing it, discerning actionable faction, faction, factual detail, and then go back and turn that functioning off. So it's a, a process of attunement, accessing information, assimilating and interpreting it, communicating it, and then disconnecting. And so people who identify as natural psychics, they just think like they're constantly open and available to any perception. And, and that's part of their persona. It's part of their identity. And it actually can be quite harmful. Uh, it's a bad example of how to function. And then people who think that they've lost something really haven't. They really haven't. The extrasensory identity, their extrasensory self is always present. They're just missing something and they think that they, something they don't need actually. Um, I'm kind of digressing, but I'll just, I'll, I'll turn this, I'll turn the mic back over to you so you can <laughs> ask a question or something. Yeah, sure. So when you're um, reading a person, uh, say, who's come to meet with you and has questions about what's happening in their future, I feel like that's probably a lot of what you're doing. Well, is that a lot of what you're doing is like future work and the future is constantly changing depending on the choices we make. You're correct. Is that something that you can see through? Okay. So, all right. So let's, let's be clear is when, when I first began, I worked um, in a very demonstrative way as people would come to me, you know, 30 years ago, 25 years ago. Um, and I would just demonstrate phenomena. I would just say, boom, 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 right? And it would be kind of, wow, how can you do that? That's really interesting. Um, and I no longer work that way. Um, and so anyone seeking predict predictions, I turn away their appointment. I, I, I'm not interested. Um, and the reason why is because needing to know the future, interpreting people's behavior, uh, these are just two examples of the functions of anxiety and what people are doing is looking to outsource the processing of their of their anxiety in order to create a sense of certainty. But to your point, there is no certainty because although I've given predictions to the Associated Press, uh, BBC, CBC, NBC, ABC, Showtime, HBO, you know, um, I said the Associated Press, Russian state media, when they were our friends in history and travel and all these other places, these big picture news items are entertainment. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that I have a very strong track record of being very accurate right down to the week and month that things occur. But when people come to me, there's consequences. So I don't just tell people things because I know people come to me when they're nervous, they're scared, they're worried, there's not gonna be enough time, enough money, enough love or what have you. And they want to know what's going to happen so they can react to it. But if I lean in and adopt their frame of reference, the way they think the world is and their limited place in it, 
I promise you, they will not like what I see because I lose big picture objectivity. More importantly, if I lean in, respond to their concern and then point to the future and say, well, don't worry, this is what's going to happen. This will make you feel good. This will be okay. I'm actually encouraging self-abandonment because I'm directing attention away from the present moment, the power of their divine connection with what is and the power of their decision-making. And if I attach them to some future point that, oh, this will be great, this will be amazing, what happens is dependence on the future is the number one cause of anxiety because the future is always changing. It, there is not just one future. It, time is an illusion. There is no sort of linear sequence that's going to bring me exactly what I want. It doesn't work that way. Because if you choose to take a left on the path instead of a right, your future would be different with even tiny choices like that. Correct. The future is like all the a, time. The future is like a video game where every potential outcome is pre-programmed and it changes moment by moment by moment based on your feelings, your decisions and your actions and everyone else's feelings, decisions and actions associated with your circumstances. And even when the future arrives in the present moment, we still have to be mindful of what do I focus on and how do I define what it is I focus on? We could walk into a restaurant and with two friends and it's a beautiful place. The server is lovely. The menu is fantastic. We eat the same thing, drink the same wine. At the end of the meal, the one friend says, oh my God, that was amazing. And then turn to the next friend and he says, what a bunch of crap, right? Because each individual brings to the table a filter comprised of all of their past experiences and their expectations. So they're not, even though the exact circumstances are the same, what they experience is something different. So I've actually, the, so I've had over years, and this is one example coming back to me, a, a woman came to me, she's now passed, so I don't mind talking about it, but several years back, she was uh, diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I worked with her and her doctor um, to coordinate you know, sort of care, but also sort of end of life and managing anxiety and stress with her. And there was, there was something that her and her husband had planned to do that was very important. And I said, I did say, look, don't worry. I said, I, it's 18 months away. Don't worry. You're still here. I see you. Now, her doctor gave her three to six months. And I said, 18 months from now, you're still here. I see you with him doing this, 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 and this, right? So I don't hear from her for like almost two years. And she books an appointment and she is overwhelmed and upset and this and that and just stressed and resentful. And she said, you know, you told me blah, blah, blah. And I said, yes. And she said, but blah, 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 blah. And I said, yes, but guess what? You're still here. And then she went, Oh my God, because what she was focusing on, she had this rage of powerlessness because of her condition and, and her death was inevitable. And she had a rage and, and just a disappointment and a terror and fear. And so what she focused on and how she defined what she focused on 
ruined her opportunity to, to share that vacation with her husband, right? The vacation, the dream vacation that her husband had planned their whole lives until they retired that she feared she wouldn't get to, to enjoy with him. And even though she did live, even though they went on the vacation, she was miserable the entire time because she had no sense of gratitude and no sense of feeling connected to the moment. The moment itself was too terrifying to open up to the vulnerability of life happening in a way that we can't predict, right? So now, you know, that experience in part of many, many others over many, many years is whenever it comes to predictive material, I always want to know what are your needs? What are the needs that are causing you the need to know the future? Then we create questions to fulfill those needs. And then the need to know the future doesn't matter because you're already living and being the certainty of who you really are. The certainty that is only found in your divine connection to what is in this present moment. What is, 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 is the eternal is is that which always is and never changes in hindu prayers it's lead us from death to life lead us from the unknown to the known lead us from the unreal to the real in christian mysticism it is the alpha and the omega it is the divine reality is that life is eternal not off in the future where we need to earn to go to heaven but right here right now underlying this personality What's animating my breath, what's animating my heart and my being is eternal. And so when we bring attention back to that, and then we work with people's decision makings, they become everything they want right, right then and there. And they live the power of that. And then whatever happens doesn't matter because they, ha they have the information at the disposal to handle it. And handling it just means making another decision and they have the ability to do just that so i know that was kind of a tirade but it's a sensitive subject for me because it's such a source of suffering for people yeah i had a tarot reader um quite a while ago in la and he also um is a psychic but he says he doesn't tell people <laughs> he's like because it rarely serves them and it will you know kind of messes with them and then their relationships kind of go the opposite way because they're like no 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 not that and he was like i just don't tell people um, yes he and did tell I... me that i wouldn't meet my partner online um mm -hmm. he's like but if you want to date online for practice and fun go for it um cool. and i didn't meet my partner online but um I th that was kind of the only thing he told me like future based but um so yeah. with, with me is when, if something comes up that I, that people need to know, I won't keep it from them. Um, and I'll, I could digress into stories about that. A lot of times it has to do with medical information and that kind of thing. Um, cause the, cause the intelligence that works through me and guides me, it prioritizes information in accordance with the individual's well-being. So I will notice that and I will communicate it in part because when that kind of information comes up, you really can't change the channel and avoid it. It's just going to keep coming back. But what I want to do and also with predictive material is the reason that life seems to be kind of out of control or overtly spontaneous at times is because we're not mindful of our decision making. Is that everything that we're deciding moment by moment by moment directly or indirectly contributes to what happens in our life. And so what I want to do is illuminate the circumstances of concern 
identify the opportunities to make decisions, and then empower people with information to make those decisions in a way that they feel is best for them. And this is, this is, it kind of sounds a little bit like coaching where it's like you said, you help them find their needs and understand their needs and what kind of will help them serve those needs in a present kind of way. I identify my service as a spiritual counseling service that employs extrasensory perception. And, and that's exactly right because otherwise a reading becomes spiritual entertainment because the individual is sitting there believing that it's happening to them and they should hear something that will uplift them or inspire them or intrigue them or mirror back their belief systems. And the problem with that is that's not how life works. The universe, the world around us is not happening to us. The universe is always flowing through us or working for us, conspiring with us in response to the contents of our character and our karma, our decisions from this life and every other lifetime to bring about the exact circumstances that will trigger us, not give us what we want, not entertain us, not amuse us, trigger us, trigger us into answering the question, am I now ready to give up, to reveal who I divinely am, to surrender into the flow of life and allow it to carry me forward, opening myself up, allowing myself to experience who I genuinely am in response to circumstances and people that will fulfill me beyond my imagination. What is our imagination? This crazy, this notion of manifesting things. It is a, it is our imagination is the way that we interpret our past the way that we imagine how our future should be and the way that we project all of our fear, anxiety, and expectations over the present moment. This is what obfuscates. This is what insulates us from reality. Life inside the bubble of a mentally false self. The liberation that we're seeking is to surrender all of that. That's the journey. Yeah. And the way that people suffer is continually trying to manipulate or manage or react to the illusion. And so an unskilled psychic just contributes more information to the illusion. When they affirm someone's worldview, boy, does that feel good. Yeah. They can also act off of facial expressions and the way people are reacting, they know how to feed into those things to well, give them results that they like perhaps but that that's kind of a cynical view i would i would say this is let's 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 pretend that the psychic is well-meaning right and yes they could be doing that without realizing it too right but many people come to psychics because they're experiencing uncertainty or they're 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 they're, they're being impacted by anxiety or you know a mild mental illness you know kind of you know, sort of a shiftlessness, a lack of focus. I don't know my purpose. And there's this anxious and they begin to think my boss hates me. My mother-in-law is a bitch and my neighbor is like that. And they come and they're just like, okay, I need to get some answers. And then the psychic says, oh my gosh, you know, your mother-in-law is such a bitch. And she's, oh my God, you're right. And so they begin to parrot back 
that person's worldview, which is really affirming. It feels good. The, the unskilled psychic feels validated. They begin to feel good and full. They lower their boundaries more, begin to kind of access that person's field of experience more boldly. The person lowers their boundaries. They feel validated. But what happens is, is, is a kind of enmeshment. There's a psychological codependency that occurs with this exchange of affirming information. And then the it creates what's called a limerence. Limerence is common when you meet that person and they're so amazing. And you just, oh, we're in love and they I'm amazing and they're amazing. You don't understand because this is the real deal. And, oh God, it's incredible. But six months later, you're like strangling each other, right? Like that's that's the thing is the this limerence is a feeling of connected connectedness. It's it's thought to be spiritual. It's thought to be something that can't be defined. It's just energy. It's beautiful, right? But what it actually is, it's a codependent relationship of affirming the delusions of so, what someone brings to the table. And a, a skilled psychic needs to be very, very mindful of that to not be aware of those things and navigate around them because the difficulty is telling it, telling someone information they don't know that they actually need to know. But when a psychic tells someone something that they don't know that they need to know, what happens is that, that punctures the comfort zone. It punctures that bubble. And that can lend a person to experiencing, you know, a little bit of anxiety or fear because now they're going outside their comfort zone. I don't know about that. I don't know how that works. And unless they are, they, they trust themselves to check that out and work with that information, it can be very kind of unnerving. But when you're working with doctors or surgeons or intelligence people or law enforcement, that's, that's the actionable information that's actually really valuable, right? And with individuals, that's the information which actually can inspire real growth or get out in front of a you know, medical condition. And it's actually really important. So it's critical to focus on serving an individual's needs, not building up um, a persona by saying, look what I can do, right? Um, so I don't know, I kind of got a, got a little tear there. I apologize, but- <laughs> Don't, <laughs> no apologize. But to, because there is the ability to discern extrasensory information as a psychic. There's that. It, it can be performative. It can be vaudeville, right? It can make people feel good. But then there's, one can reach a point in their career where they realize performing is more about me and less of a service. And once you develop the skills and the experience to be able to understand people and navigate around certain things and access information in a, in a way that illuminates the individual that you're, that you're relating to, then the extrasensory perception becomes a skill that you can employ in service to others, independent of belief system, independent of ego. And this is when genuine healing occurs. So, I, I often, when I'm working with a new client, I have a lengthy introduction and I'll share with them things like, this is the kind of work that human beings have been doing with one another for thousands of years. And if we make it opaque, if we try to you know, describe 
you know, oh, there's this, this, and this, and, and we treat it as a kind of performance, it, it, it becomes performance art. And we're focused on the acquiring of an experience or acquiring of a sensation, but or affirming a belief system. But if we let all that go, and even the words that are passing between us, and we understand that these words are just vehicles, they're, they're concepts, and we let the vibration that is carrying those words do its work, it goes through us and for us, and wonderful things happen wonderful things. Um, recently, I was working with a client, and she was referred by a spiritual teacher, her, a mentor of this woman. Uh, and this, this young lady, she was 41 and hadn't had a period in 12 years. And you can imagine, you know, that was difficult uh, intimately between her and her husband. And then there were a lot of health concerns that were, that were popping up as a result. And so I, her, her mentor was speaking to me and she said, you know, Jack, it, it was really wonderful. You, um, you spent three hours with so-and-so and she really, really benefited. She learned a lot. But, you know, in the last five minutes, you really disappointed her. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, okay, well, you know, that's the way it is. I'm sorry. And she said, no, 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 you don't understand. Her GP, her endocrinologist, her OBGYN, they all... They all concurred that she's in menopause and she needs to go on synthetic hormones. And that comes with its own cost, right? And I said, okay, yeah. And she said, well, she asked you flat out, am I in menopause? And you said, no. And I said, that's right. And she said, well, but the scientists all said yes. And I said, I know. I just got to tell you, this is what I'm seeing and this is how it is. And then it's your responsibility to research it. And she said, no, 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 no. Again, you don't understand. The next day, she woke up with her period. Right? So 12 years. And I, I have nothing to do with that. Nothing. What I can say is, is this, this was a person who was absolutely present with me. Absolutely candid. Absolutely allowed me to access her being and, and follow the methodology and the things that I've learned to do with people and for people over 30 years. And we took it as far as we could go. And then we allow the work to be what it is. And that's what happens. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to be anything. All we have to do is allow life itself to flow. And it goes before us, making the crooked places straight. Yeah, like it's you said earlier, you talked about surrender, surrender. and surrendering to like kind of like surrendering to the flow of life. Right. And and this, if we look, are you familiar with the story of St. Paul? Uh, no. Okay. So, so Saul of Tarsus was a Roman army hunter. And in first century um, Judea, or all around the Roman Empire, first century Roman Empire, his job was to slaughter Christians, right? Because this guy, Jesus, came along and taught that um, kingdom of heaven is within. And that was a real problem because the, the Jews were very difficult people because every other civilization that had been conquered by the Romans was easily assimilated, right? So the Roman culture was polytheist. 
They conquered Greece. Great, we'll take your gods. And now everyone can worship them. Uh, and they didn't give up the other gods, the pagan gods. Well, okay, now they conquer Persia. Okay, great. We've got your gods. Now we add them to the collection. Anybody can, can worship anything they want. The sun, the moon, the trees, whatever. They conquer Palestine. And the Jews were like, yeah, no, we don't do that. There's only one God. And the Romans were like, are you sure there's only one God? Because we might have to kill you all. And they said, no, no, we're really sure there's only one God. So what they did is they recruited the religious establishment and they went to the Pharisees and said, hey, we're pretty sure there's more than one God. What do you think? Hint, hint. And they said, you know, we'll get on that. So the Romans would dictate to the Jews through the temple. Right. And so the Pharisees were in league with the Jews, and that's how they kept the Jews in line and tried to create some kind of peace. You follow me? Yeah. Jesus comes along and says, mm, by the way, the kingdom of heaven is within. It's not in the temple. It's here. So now, as Christianity takes root, the Jews are no longer listening to the Pharisees and Sadducees, etc. And it's beginning to create chaos. And then this new religion begins to become a cancer in all of Rome. Uh, and so Saul of Tarsus was dispatched to start going around and killing all the Jews. And of course, we know historically they ended up being fed to lions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, until Christianity became the official religion of Rome. But that was took 300 years. So my point is this, is that along the way, Saul had an epiphany. He saw Christ or saw an angel or had this, this epiphany where he went blind, whether that's literal or metaphorical, but then he completely changed and he became the greatest messenger of Christianity, uh, perhaps ever. And he went all over the Roman Empire, setting up churches and, and preaching and speaking. And this is very much in line with the of the times and also arguably if one believes in the messages uh saying that christ jesus of nazareth actually was educated in the east which was the center of religion alexandria and then of course you know um the temples and universities in southeast asia and india etc and in nepal and um so that's very much in that tradition where yogis would wander and teach and you know get fed and what have you and that kind of looks like what jesus did uh, in Palestine. And then, of course, Paul sort of was doing the same thing, but eventually he got captured. And he wrote to all his followers. And these are the letters that are in the Bible, all the different chapters written by him. And he finally said, hey, they got me. You're not going to see me next year or next month when I come around and give you new teaching. So don't worry. I've given you everything you need. Do not cry for me. It's not my life. I am the Christ, and it lives through me, right? So this message of the impersonal, capital S self, living through us as our life, this is, this is the goal as spiritual aspirants. It's not to be psychic. It's not to do anything. It's to allow yourself to be what is most natural and what is most natural is to sit and look at your dog and be as wonderful as they see you to be right to be able to think of saint francis the birds come and land on him right there's other yogis in 
Southeast Asia, where that was sort of this thing too, where the human being is no longer felt as a threat to the survival of the animals and winged creatures of this planet. So that was the message of Adam and Eve, right? To be in union with the garden, to be union with, with nature, God being nature, right? Until they began to develop this notion that they were separate from, and then they suffered. So if we can return to that place where of non-being, non-doing, to live in harmony with what is, then that's true meditation. That is a, a there's an equanimity. I am not better. I am not worse than anything around me. I am. So, you know, I'll, I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> I'm going to um, ask you a random question. Um, what do you like to do in your free time? <laughs> I like to do in my free time. Uh, well, I have been a, a lifelong kind of um, devotee of martial arts. So Ooh. I train a lot. Um, several. Kind of, do you have different um, arts that you practice in or you focus in on one? Well, pro well, in recent years, I'd say the last 15 to 20 years, I've primarily been training in uh, Japanese martial arts or Japanese jujitsu. Um, and I finished up a long course, uh, which was sort of a Hawaiian interpretation of that. Uh, and then I, before that, I've been involved in sort of a Polynesian interpretation of Japanese jiu-jitsu. And now I'm doing something else um, just, you know, on the side here. But I, I do a lot of martial arts. I'm very, very physical. I'm up every day at five. And I, you know, I bike and I you know, like to be physically active. And because, you know, then I come home and I do my meditation practice. And I might have a meeting with my assistant and we'll do some admin work. And then I'll take my first client. So my life sort of revolves around my work. Um, but I also, I mean, like anyone else, I like to spend time with friends or travel or, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, of course, for the meditate, the meditation ward. Um, so you mentioned coming back and doing your meditation. What is your meditation practice like? And um, also you mentioned too, with uh, this, the psychic uh, work that you, you know, drop your, you bring it in, but you also have to cut it off. So I'm curious what the um, allowing it to flow looks like. But I guess first, what is your meditation practice um, after you go and do your morning um, activities? Sure, 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 sure. So meditation practice for me is, to put very simply in one sentence, is to do nothing very carefully. Do nothing. And so sometimes, you know, when I'm leaving the gym in the morning, my meditation might begin by just finding the empty space in my body, right? To lengthen my limbs, my joints, to be straight back and just breathe and feel the empty space within my body. And then to begin a walking meditation and being very, very deliberate in my step in so that I continually maintain a feeling of uh, the presence of that emptiness 
And what's what's interesting is is when that occurs, it's it's almost as if everything gets brighter, crisper, sharper, and and there's a feeling of sort of spaciousness and stillness and relaxation. And really, whether I so whether I'm walking or I'm I'm sitting, is that's really the focus of my meditation is to do absolutely nothing except for feel the spaciousness of my being. And so I might, you know, of course, I, I might work with my breath or do some a little intramuscular relaxation, but that's about it. I don't really ascribe to rigid techniques because systemizing it, what I found, um, makes the mind mechanical. And even with really, really long-term devoted meditation uh, practitioners, there, there can be a robotic quality in their movement or in their voice. And I'm not saying that's wrong. It just doesn't feel right for me. And so because I feel that the mind becomes less spontaneous, it becomes less sensitive, it becomes, everything becomes very methodical and organized. Now, the, the benefit of having that methodical and organized sort of um, experience of the mind is that you do begin to see the spaces in between thought. Um, and so that's actually very valuable, but it's, but there's other, this way affords that as well. Yeah. It's so, not just spaces between the thought, but it's empty spaces within your cells, your body. All of that. Yeah. yeah. It, it, there's a, so when you're stressed, do you feel more tight and, and heavier and taut, or do you feel kind of loose and relaxed? Yeah, definitely. The, the first. Right, right. <laughs> And so, so there is a value in working with the body. And if we can create that sense of relaxation or that sense of correct posture and openness, uh, then, you know, the mind will relax some. But the more we focus on the mind, the more we kind of identify with the contents of the mind. And so what I've learned to do is just sort of let it go. You know, let the mind do whatever it's going to do because the mind needs thoughts. The mind needs thoughts or it doesn't feel it exists, right? But when you don't identify with the mind, it doesn't matter what the mind does. Right? So do nothing very carefully is sort of what's become my, my mantra when it comes to, to med my meditation practice. And then I might just sit. I might sit and just let the body relax, let the breathing be natural let the mind kind of run out of its run its course and then it sort of slows that down and goes quiet and then i just try to remain there that's it remain there i don't i don't put a goal on it uh when i was young and i first started doing this like okay i want to do this and i want my mind to be like that and there's this sense of of struggle it creates this internal conflict of trying to achieve something through meditation but what happens is it elicits this kind of self-evaluating response where that that in itself becomes a source of, of anxiety and stress. Yeah. I'm just sort of trying to let go of it. Yeah, I talked to an actor the other day and we were talking a little bit about acting classes and he kind of was like, I feel like the point of acting classes over time is to teach you that you don't need acting classes. <laughs> yeah, and it sounds like, but also for meditation, to get to the point that you're in, sometimes you have to go through those beginning harsher, like more 
strict mm. steps to learn that you can let them go and just show up in the space in between. True, very true. Because people don't aren't aware of the fact of how identified they or dependent they are on the body or how ensnared they are on the mind or how hyperreactive and attached they are to their emotions. And so these this more disciplined approaches um, sort of cause people to realize where they're holding on. But then once you know where you're holding on, you have to just let go. Yeah. Uh, and then, but that, that in itself becomes a thing because when you just let go, you don't know who you're going to become or what's going to happen. And, and, and we can look at that as sort of the dark night of the soul in a way, you know, or, or lo, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, right? So the, the shadow of death is the death of the ego. It's we're going into darkness. So long as I'm identified with my mind or I, I'm really attuned with my emotions and I'm really into my body, then I kind of know what's going to happen. But when I let go of those three things, then it's, I have nothing to orient myself by. Goes back to the beginning of our conversation is the experience of self only emerges in relationship to an object that it focuses on. So in a similar way with mental illness is when people lose that subject object relationship, they fall into a hole. And this is when people, they become absolutely terrified and overwhelmed, even, even psychosis, because they, they're panicking. It's like they've been thrown into the ocean at night in the middle of the Pacific, and they're reaching for anything to hold on to. And so what happens though with spiritual practice is you begin to, you begin to come to understand that I am water, that I can float, that this is where I belong. And so the depth of that dark water is no longer frightening. You just lay back and float, right? And then you can move into experience and out of experience and move into experience and out of experience. And this is again, and Christ was not the only teacher to say this, but he said it most eloquently, which is, I can lay my body down and pick it up again. And that speaks to this idea of literally leaving the physical body and other yogis have done that but but also we can look at it more metaphorically which we can look at the body the body of our persona what we think what we feel what we imagine we are physically we can let it go even if for 30 seconds in the morning 30 seconds at night maybe then it becomes 10 minutes and then what happens is when you allow yourself to separate from that the meditative practice, the, the brain begins to reorganize itself. It's sort of like when you kind of reboot your computer, it begins to reorganize. And it, it, the way that you perceive things afterwards is very, very different. And it becomes a, it becomes a way of refreshing and rebooting to the point where, oh, shoot, I didn't meditate today. That's why I feel so misaligned. Yeah. I feel so grateful that the way my life has like led me, I have a meditation practice <laughs> and I'm so grateful for it um, for some of those reasons. Yeah. It's wonderful, right? To have yeah. just a few minutes 
it gives you a touch point. If the kids are screaming or, you know, you're at work and stressed, or you just like, you can go back to that. And at any point you can turn your attention to that slowness. It's always with us, no matter where we are. And in relationship to that, your experience of self changes. Yeah. There was um, like a week where I think every day for like 20 minutes, I inhale peace, exhale peace, inhale peace, exhale peace. It was like from a teacher, we had to pick a word or a phrase. And I was like, when I found out I had to do it all week, I was like, are you kidding me? By the end of the week, all of a sudden it just like hit me. Everything will be okay. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's peace. Yeah. Not no matter what happens, what direction things happen that it's okay. I'm going to be okay. And um, it's something I have to constantly remind myself when I'm going through stressful, hard, confusing times that it will be okay. We all, we all do. Yeah. Uh, And to remain in that centered space, we notice that it's whatever occurs is never as bad as we imagined it would be. Yeah. Also, like you were talking about earlier with imagination and us thinking about our future or manifestations, our brain can't imagine all the amazing opportunities that could happen because we've never even thought of them. So once we let that go, something more incredible than you couldn't even imagine is allowed to create. Exactly right. Because the ego works for its survival, not yours. So it imagines conditions that will allow it to flourish. And so long as we're identified with it, we think, yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. But ultimately it becomes a source of suffering and striving for it is the source of suffering. Yeah. And I, I do believe that meditation is one of the only ways, whether it's walking, whether, whether you're just looking, creating space and trying to disconnect from yourself is one of the only ways that you can find that. I would tweak you just a little bit and say, you're not disconnecting from yourself. You're disconnecting and resting into the self. Ooh. Yeah. Capital S. Exactly. Exactly. Capital S. Um, so I do, I know where it's 1212. I always say when it is, I say, oh no, in my time zone, I always say, you can't make this stuff up because I always look at wish times. Um, Oh, yeah. So if I would love just for a couple moments, if you don't mind sharing, what is it like when you start allowing this information to come in? What is what do you do before that um, to open up to that space? Because it's probably not like you're looking at me right now and reading me. It's like something you said, no. you disconnect and you you can turn on. Do you mind sharing what that experience is? So for me is I've mostly always worked in an absolutely dark room, like a sensory deprived environment. Um, I don't see people in person. I don't do this. I don't like this. Not, I'm happy to be (laughs) like it. Um, So, and I would never work this way, Um, principally because of the light and things. These are all sensory distractions. And what I've been trained to do and how I feel safe and, and, and most skillful is being in a dark room. So I sit in a dark room and then I do, um, I do have a sort of meditative practice that I begin, which is it's, it's unique and specific to me doing the work. Um, and without 
sort of giving away the specific things that I visualize or things that I do or experience, I'll just sort of, I'll kind of talk about what it is. Uh, interestingly enough, some of the, the activities are that I do in this meditation are things that were shown and came to me sometimes more than 30 years ago. Um, when I first began to awaken to my extrasensory ability, I had a variety of kind of um, outer body experiences and all kinds of kind of paranormal things, which could be, I guess, discussed at another time, but they really don't have much meaning to be truthful, except for the fact that, that they, they've become part of the ritual. And so loosely what I do is I'll, I sit, I'll do some vocalization exercises. Uh, then I'll go quiet. Then I will, you know, put my feet on the floor, straighten my back, and then open up the body to feel those uh, relaxed and open spaces. Then I work with my breathing. Okay. So I draw the, the diaphragm deep within the pelvis, hold, exhale. These are pretty straightforward pranayama, right? Um, then there is, I will, there's a certain, I guess you could call it a prayer. I don't necessarily, I'm not praying to someone, but it's more like instructions. It's a surrendering uh, where I surrender the individual self. And it is a, and because I've been doing it for many, 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 many years, it's accompanied by some dramatic physical sensations. And it is, is a feeling of separation. And then there's a visualization of kind of putting that all aside. And then is a, the opening up to the presence, like being fully present in the eternal now. And then from there, the, I become put, place my attention on the circulation of energy in the body. So I'm not necessarily, you know, doing sort of, you know, chakra things. Um, I, I don't really ascribe to this sort of opening up of chakras and closing them down kind of business. Your chakras are always functioning. And they're not really organs that you can, that do a certain function. Chakras are really the, they're the, they're the observations of the energy flow. So it, not to do a lecture on that, but it, it's, I become mindful of the circulation of energy and I hold, I build energy in what's called the Hara, which is the, just the kind of this center just below the navel and inside the body. And then begin to allow the energy to distribute up, up the spine and up through what would be commonly understood as the chakras. And then peel off and separate again. So literally peeling off layers. And after about, gosh, two or three exercises of that, then there's a surrender of the past, the present, and the future self. And then there's an opening of the heart. And then... There's some other more personal things that occur that then, then enters into sort of a direct contact and a sort of a mission statement of being of service and not, in, you know, basically thy will be done. Yeah. And, and from there, it's, there's a different, I'm sitting in the dark and now I can see in the dark and I'm super sharp and I'm you know, I begin to get images or experiences. I might make a couple of notes on a pad and then we pick up the phone and I engage with the client and then we walk them through an entire 
uh, process that requires their engagement that addresses and resolves their concerns from this more impersonal kind of illumined space. Wow. What a beautiful process. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Um, before I'm a Reiki master, so before every interview, it I feel the universal life force energy. I do a prayer to God or higher power, um, asking that I can be of service. Um, I create a bridge from you to me before we start. And I ask for this interview to be of service to me, to you and whoever's listening and have that intention. So I love that. I think being in service is just so important and trying to find what our life work is of how we can be of service. Well, you, you'll, you probably have discovered without realizing it that purpose is found in the mirroring back of your individual creative value through how you how you serve right so people experience your authenticity and your willingness to be there for them and then that mirroring back to you your value as it authentically is expressed in accordance with your integrity there it is right? thank you thank you for saying that well of course and it's a it's an impersonal experience um, and the wonderful thing about that is once you find that, then everything else kind of doesn't matter. You know, you just, it, you know what you're doing and why you're doing it. Yeah. You know, who you serve and how you serve. And then you, and then the people that benefit, benefit. And then those that don't, then that's okay because they, they should be served by someone who is more suited for their unique disposition. Yeah. Right? The same, the same healing source energy finds them just through a different conduit. Yeah. Carolyn Mays is one of my favorite medical intuitives and like spiritual um, healing people. I don't know if you know of her. She's been around for quite a while. She's incredible. But one of the books I'm reading of hers right now is that it's saying that we're here to try to figure out what God, our capital self, and our ego, like, how we showed up in the this world with the gifts that we were given combined can create and be of service. It's like, cause we were also given this body, put in this time in the place we're at for a reason. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I just want to thank you so much. I wish I could talk to you for hours and hours, but you have a life and I don't. So <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> I have clients after this. So my first client starts. Right yeah. Well, I want to really just thank you. We're going to have everything in the show notes. Um, but if you would like to say out loud um, your websites where people can find your book um, and how they can find you if they ever want to work with you, I'd love for you to say it verbally as well. I see. I see. Well, the book, the book is probably best found on soundstrue.com. So you go to my publisher, Sounds True. And I think Carolyn Miss is also represented there. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> you can, you know, search either of our names and you can, you can find the book. It, I look very different, much younger, but you'll find it there. Um, it also may be available on Amazon uh, or any of the other booksellers. Um, and, you know, I'm easy to find as well. You just, um, the link will be in the show notes and you can just Google my name and I'll come up. So. Yeah. Well, geez, Louise, thank you for everything that you shared and all this time. I learned so much and I'm so appreciative for this conversation. 
Well, thank you for making time with me, and I appreciate the invitation. And you're doing really wonderful work, and I'm very. Thank, thank you. Um, so I'm going to stop recording now, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Right, you have a great day now. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening. We hope you stick around for the meditation on the next episode. If you're interested in wellness coaching through a meditative lens or starting your own meditation practice with accountability, check out TheMeditationWard.com. Give us a follow on Instagram at TheMeditationWard and please like, review us, and share with your friends. See you soon.